Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I'm super pumped today to have Professor Van Dalen with me. Hello, Professor. Hello. I'm excited to be here with you on this podcast. Thank you. I hope you're doing well in the midst of you know, all, this, all this chaos. Yes, I'm trying to as much as possible. Thank you. The same to you. I want to thank you for being on the podcast. And I, I think we should just kind of just go ahead and get started. Um, uh-huh. But before we do, I was hoping you could just briefly introduce uh, yourself, your background, your research interests, stuff like this. Uh, yes, so I am um, um, a, a philologist uh, of Greco-Arabic studies, and I work specifically on Islamic medicine. So um, I'm very interested in the way um, um, uh, Greek texts were read by Islamic scholars, but also uh, Islamic medicine in itself, uh, un- unrelated to Greek text. Um, and I'm working on a book on the way... Um, uh, in which um, Islamic physicians from the 10th to 13th, 14th centuries read Hippocrates and how they engage with translations um, and advance um, uh, understanding and um, interpretations of those of those texts. Thank you. And you're currently teaching at Columbia University. Yes, uh, I've, I've been at Columbia f- uh, for a year and a half now, and it's a great place. Uh, I teach... Um, undergraduates and graduate students uh, in history of medicine and more general general Asian, humani- uh, Asian humanities literature. Um, so it's been really great fun. Understood, understood. So we'll just get started. And uh, the first question is, before the rise of Islam, how were Greek philosophical and medical texts transmitted and engaged with in the, in the, in the Near East? So before the rise of Islam, if we look at the region where... Um, uh, where Islam would spread right after the Arab conquest, and there were two empires: uh, the Byzantine Empire um, and and the Persian Sassanid Empire. And uh, in both these reason, uh, regions, people actively studied uh, philosophical medical texts. If we look at Byzantium, then uh, we have scholars in Alexandria, such as Palladius, John of Alexandria, and Stephen of Athens, who actively write commentaries on uh, medical works by, for example, Hippocrates and Galen, um, and use them in their teaching and in their research. And also they teach what would later become known as uh, an Alexandri- the Alexandrian curriculum, which um, included uh, works by Hippocrates, by Galen and Aristotle. Um, so you can see that uh, in this Byzantine part, Hippocratic and Galenic texts, they were really uh, part of a living scholarly tradition, not really seen as ancient texts, but uh, they were very important. Then if we look at the Sassanid Empire, um, uh, their scholars also uh, studied Persian medical texts that were, that were influenced by Galenic theory, but they were also familiar with those texts themselves. There's a story about the monarch uh, Hasr I, um, accepting uh, seven scholars who had to leave after Emperor Justinian closed the academy in Athens. So they came to Persian Empire and they were accepted there and they shared their ideas. And of course, there were texts read from many other origins to read their Persian texts and Indian texts. But we can uh, say that also in the Persian Sassanid Empire, there was knowledge of Greek uh, philosophical medical knowledge. So in the areas where 
the Arabs would, would later start their empires, uh, we, we can say that these ancient Greek works were, were, were studied actively, sometimes in translation in Syriac, but they weren't, they weren't unknown texts or irrelevant texts. They were, they were relevant texts for scholarship. Uh, so thank you for that, Professor. When and where were the were texts first translated after the rise of Islam? Was there engagement with Greek texts among Muslims prior to those texts actually being translated into Arabic? Mm-hmm. So you already see some translations uh, during the Umayyad ca- uh, Caliphate uh, with its capital in Damascus. Um, but the real start of translations happened after it during the Abbasid Empire. But that doesn't mean that from the rise of Islam, all the scholarship that was happening in those uh, former Byzantine and Sassanid regions stopped. Uh, um, that continued, right? We also shouldn't think that immediately everyone became Muslim in those regions, but the Christian communities that worked there, um, they would have continued uh, engaging with the Greek texts, uh, the Hippocratic and Galenic texts that I just mentioned. Um, and sometimes they did so in Syriac translations because before the um, before these texts were translated into Arabic, uh, Syriac-speaking communities had already um, translated those into Syriac and kept studying them. Uh, another thing is that in um, Arabic uh, Arab places such as Hira, um, Christian Arabic speakers would have engaged with Greek liturgy. So the the text that they used in their in their uh, services that, that would have been in Greek too. So they engaged with um, Greek texts in that context too. Understood. And so, what is this this translation movement? So, translation movement is a term that's used to refer to uh, the extensive, uh, really incredibly extensive translation activities into Arabic that took place from roughly the eighth to the tenth centuries in Baghdad, as well as other Abbasid intellectual centers. Um, they, these translations took place uh, from Greek, but also from Persian, Syriac, and even uh, Sanskrit and Really, uh, there were hundreds of translators that took part of this. It was supported very widely by a variety of patrons from multiple uh, social backgrounds. And it was also actively um, supported by the ruling class. So it, it just resulted in a massive amount of translation. Um, the, I have uh, heard some critique on the use of the term movement. It's, of course, really widely used in the scholarship. But um, uh, some people say, well, it wasn't. Uh, an official movement, like it wasn't recognized as such at the time, but it it, it would be a movement more in a uh, in a sense that, that it describes uh, that it describes a moment in history during which activities of trans- translational activities took place. And, and so, what was kind of the the political and social context uh, behind all of this? Like, well, I guess what what was the impetus to to you know to kind of translate? Right, that's a, it's a complex uh, question. We already saw that during the Umayyad uh, Empire, some translations took place. But what happened uh, politically and socially when um, the translations really started kicking off is that you have the beginning of the Basset Empire, which had its capital in um, Baghdad, uh, which means that that was a capital that was much closer to where the majority of the Persian uh, inhabitants of the empire lived. So you now have a place where Persian and um, inhabitants from the former Byzantine Empire, they unite. So you have a very different um, 
you have a very different social um, uh, social fabric of the society, as well as an Abbasid empire that politically wants to establish itself uh, firmly in uh, next to the the Byzantine Empire uh, with its capital in Constantinople, but also in uh, succession of the former Sassanid Empire that had emphasis uh, that really highly valued its intellectual traditions, right? So it kind of had it had to continue those habits and customs of intellectualism that already took place. So yes, yeah, so this is also in a period where there's um, uh, there's increased Arabization. So during the Umayyads, already Arabic became the official administrative language, but during this period, increasingly so, the elite and intellectual activities were all. Um, uh, performed in Arabic, and it's difficult to know to what extent the full population would also have spoken Arabic, but we know that that increases, and um, that's something to keep in mind. Um, Another thing that happened that's important to know is um, the introduction of papermaking technologies from China in 751. So that means that uh, it was much easier to produce written books, much um, cheaper than, than... uh, the parchment that was used before. So we have political change, social change, um, technological changes um, that all um, were important factors at the background of of this of this movement. Understood. And and who in particular uh, kind of initiated or maybe took uh, the translation movements uh, to its full form? And 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 why did why did caliphs and patrons? feel the need to maintain this translation activity through several generations? Mm-hmm. That, again, is a very important question and also a, com- a complex question um, to which we scholars have multiple uh, answers. And I think um, there's uh, there's a truth in, in all of them. Um, so on the one hand, you have more of a top-down view um, uh, that we find um, in in the work of Dmitri Gutas, who explains really that the Abbasids um, uh, felt the need to uh, posit their empire in that long intellectual tradition of the Sassanids and next to uh, Byzantium, uh, and they needed a practical uh, knowledge. Uh, they needed astronomy and medical texts, and therefore really supported. Um, translations, even though he also said that this elite that supported translation movement was very, very diverse. Um, but he definitely uh, says we shouldn't underestimate um, the role of the elite, right? And then in George Salipa's uh, work, we find a more a bottom-up approach where uh, he stresses the role of middle-class administrators um, who competed for jobs and because they all wanted to perform uh, well and keep their jobs, they um, they all are very actively uh, search for ways to translate texts and increased um, increase that demand now um, or no increase the output of translations. In addition to that, we also have uh, um, I need to keep in mind the scholarship that existed. Uh, Previously, we talked about um, medical research that was being done in Alexandria. Uh, and while well, Alexandria lost its economic and intellectual uh, role uh, as a center, uh, that scholarship con- continued, right? So there's still um, phys- 
and astronomers that's working in the traditions that people were already working in before these political and uh, linguistic changes. So uh, they now need the works they were already working with to be translated in new, uh, into into Arabic. Um, and you also see that that in, in the fact that important patrons of medical texts were themselves physicians, for example, of the Bukhtishu family and of other texts also. An example is the Banu Musa. They were themselves scholars. So scholars, because of their scholarly needs, also were had an important role in the initiation and continuation of these activities. So I think it's really a combination of of all these members of society. Thank you for that. And so what was the motivation behind translating texts uh on certain topics, and and how did how did the change in social and religious atmosphere engender the transition of other types of texts? So, I, I, in the case of medical texts and astronomical texts, and clearly there there is a need uh, by scholars to um, to have the texts that they use in their scholarship in Arabic, right? To have access to that. Um, and uh, you also see that caliphs support that as well, because f- for them, too, medicine and uh, astronomy are disciplines that are important. They're practical. Now, if we look at philosophy, uh, that was also considered very important in, in many ways. Um, it even had a practical um, uh, application, too, because in medicine, it was considered necessary to know of, of philosophy and logic um, and uh, also in the theological debates that were happening at the time, um, again, not everyone was Muslim yet, right? But there was an increasing amount of Muslims in society, where, uh, whereas there were also still Christian communities, there were Jewish communities, and people spoke with each other, they were in conversation with each other, which was a, a, a nice thing. And for, for these debates, it was good to know of logic. Right? So that also increased uh, the need and interest in philosophy to be able to um, effectively uh, engage in debates with, uh, with religious, but also uh, components that differed in other respects. Uh, so this doesn't cover everything, but these are some of the, of the, of the motivations. What was the, the Beit al-Hikmah? And how has this been popularly understood? Is, is the understanding of Know how normally people understand Beit uh, an accurate and correct understanding. Yeah, so let's uh, first um, talk a bit about how it's been popularly understood. I think it's really been blown up a bit as this um, house of wisdom. It's just how it translates to into English, um, where this entire translation movement took place, and which was founded by the caliphs, and everyone worked there and got paid there. Um, and it was this institution, uh, almost like an academic institution today, where people studied the sciences as well, and it was really vibrant. Now, society was very vibrant, and all these activities happened, but it wouldn't be correct to think that that happened in the House of Wisdom, because what we know in the literature um, and in the sources about um, about this Beit uh, al is actually very limited. Um, definitely the caliphs um, from Al-Mansur onwards, they had a library, and yes, it's also referred to as Beit al-Hikmah, but um, um, it, its scope was more limited than 
than what I just described. It was a place where, yes, people worked in the service of these caliphs for uh, Harun al-Rashid, for instance. They also translated for them, right? They especially there's reference to works from Persian being translated. And in addition to translated, they also worked on algebra and astronomy. So what we can say that's likely true is that these caliphs did support a library where a variety of intellectual activities took place. Uh, and it was also similar to, uh, to a kind of library that the Sasanian administration used to support before, right? But it was not the large central academy that would have served as the center of the translation movement. And also not the place where a lot of Greek, uh, Greek Arabic translation took place. Thank you. And, and so as we move on, I, you know, I kind of wanted to ask kind of like the, the ins and outs of, of translations. How were translations being done? How did the people get the original works which were translated, and who who are these who are these translators? What what knowledge did they did they have as it related to the text that they were translating? So it it, it depends on on the discipline, but uh, what's um, certain for the beginning of the of of these activities is there wasn't a professional group of translators. Rather, uh, if you take the case of medicine, for instance, you have uh, often physicians themselves who translate. Um, and as their reputation raises for for making good translations, they will have been um, asked to do more translations. Um, some of these people knew Greek as their native language. Uh, an example of that is Gusta Ben Luca. Um, and others knew it to some level, such as Honein. He was an, an Arab Christian who probably knew it, for, who knew Greek from from uh, its liturgical use. But he had to actually travel to Byzantium for three years to improve his knowledge of the language. And after that, he, he knew it so well that he was able to recite Homer. So you see that these people already started, like in the case of Honein, he started already translating with that before he traveled, right? And when he felt the need, he needed to learn more Greek, he did that afterwards. What he already was was a physician who knew the text he was translating and the information in them, he knew that well, um, it, there, it, there wasn't a ready class of translators at the beginning. Uh, but as as time went on, uh, we know that uh, the salaries were large, so people would be able to live uh, purely off their translational activity. So there's the, there's a context to kind of the text that were originally written. Uh, there's a language, there's a culture, there's an environment geography and then there's a context in which this translation and reading is happening so how did people reading the translations of things like herb names or disease names understand what they were in their own context uh given that you know this is a completely different uh, place yeah so again we, we need to keep in mind that these texts weren't at the time these people were translating them completely foreign they already were working with them they're fathers and generations before them already uh, knew what was in them sometimes. Um, so for instance, they already were known, some disease names were already known, had already uh, Syriac names from previous Syriac translations. So when making Greek translations, uh, that people would make use of these Syriac loanwords uh, and clearly assume that their audience would read that. Or for words that didn't have an Arabic word, they would uh, transliterate the Arabic word and same with herbs, and then add a definition to it um, so that people would understand it. But nonetheless, uh, in the case of diseases, and perhaps also herbs, but I can give an example of diseases, later Arabic physicians would sometimes understand something different than the translated uh, translator intended, or 
the translator would have intended something else than the Greek author intended. Um, so that's both because insight into diseases and what they prefer to change and evolve, and because of the language that's developing and the terminology that's changing. So the Arabic of a lot of these translations is sometimes known as translationese, or at least um, that's how a uh, very brilliant uh, professor of mine would describe it. And so were these translations ever difficult to, to decipher? Uh, was your system to guarantee accurate translations? Were texts translated many times by multiple people? Uh, you know, maybe with someone being like looking at one translation and saying, oh, this is a garbage translation. I'm going to do a better job or you should do a better job. Mm-hmm. Yes, that definitely happened. So someone who was known for his his um, his his bad style was Yahya ibn al-Batriq, a very early translator who worked before Hunayn in the beginning of the ninth century. His father was a translator, too, who was described as reliable, but also described as someone whose Arabic was broken and and, and not nice. So I'm, I think it wasn't so much hard to uh, decipher. Maybe at times it was, but it was mostly that the language wasn't nice. Someone as Al-Kindi, the philosopher, who did not know Greek himself, he would improve uh, translations of this kind stylistically. Um, but um, later translators, such as Honein, they would redo these translations that they considered bad. Some translations were so bad that they would really he would consider them unusable. Even his own. He would sometimes go back to translations that he'd done earlier in his life and see mistakes uh, that made him want to do them again. Uh, an example I can give of that is the translation of the aphorisms, the Hippocratic collection of medical verses, which had been tra- translated by uh, the father of Yahya ibn al-Batriq, al-Batriq as identified by Oman. Uh, first, right, and you see that that's in some early commentary that translation is used, but it's then done again by Hunayn, and it's Hunayn's translation that becomes much more popular because it's it's more eloquent, it's better, and uh, you see that that older translation doesn't uh, continue to be used. But as time progressed, translation became of a higher standard and expectations. Uh, were raised and as mentioned before the translators were paid very well so competition was big and if your style uh, wasn't good you wouldn't get uh, as many requests and patrons also did quality checks uh, for example the patron uh, Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn al-Mudabbir he requested a translation of Galen's commentary on the aphorisms and when he did that he approached Hunayn and he said can you do the first book uh, perhaps um uh, he did that because he wasn't interested in reading all seven, because in total it, it's divided in seven books. But perhaps also he wanted to check first the way in which he would do the first book to see uh, if if he was satisfied and wanted to wanted to continue because he liked his quality. Understood. So how did people get the original works that that were eventually translated? That's an interesting uh, question. There's there's several. Um, stories about it actually um that caliph al-mamun uh, he had a famous dream that uh, of aristotle that inspired him um to start translating greek works and that led him to send missions to byzantium to go get uh text there um right they were all outside of um the umayyad and abbasid empire so they had to uh be uh, retrieved from Byzantium, according to 
that kind of story. But in reality, you can see that Batrik um, and his son Abu Yahya, Ibn Batrik, they already were translating before those missions. Um, and when we look at uh, Honain's report, Honain, uh, the translator, he actually wrote uh, a risala, an epistle about his own translation, uh, translations for his patron. And he describes his travels in search for uh, translations. So he searched um, at many places within the Abbasid Empire in the former cities of Byzantium, such as Alexandria and Damascus, um, where Greek copies of these texts uh, were still preserved. So, for example, he found half of the Greek manuscripts of Galen's uh, uh, demonstration in Damascus, but not in other places. Um, but others he also found uh, in, in those centers I mentioned. So you see that these texts weren't alien to the region. But also they were brought, uh, for example, Kusta ben Luca, the native Greek speaker, he traveled to Byzantium and brought with him um, from their uh, um, manuscripts. So as soon as um, in Byzantium people started really copying Greek texts again, after they also learned that uh, people in the Abbasid Empire were were flourishing. Sorry, after they learned that the sciences in the Abbasid Empire were flourishing so much, right, and the interest in Greek texts and the translations, um, people started offering a lot of um, uh, Greek texts in Byzantium. So um, definitely, that was also a source. So, so both within the empire itself, but also in Byzantium, these Greek texts could be found and were searched for. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you. How did different individuals respond to the translation of, you know, quote-unquote foreign sciences? How is translation perceived between different people? If we respond to that question looking at the time after translation, so if we look at the 9th, 10th century, then, of course, there's this article of Goldsihar that kind of comes to mind about how Islamic orthodoxy um, would have been against those foreign sciences and we see them as foreign. Uh, and that has kind of been uh, analyzed by, by Dimitri Gutas, who says, well, what's this orthodoxy? And, um, uh, right, because that's not really a defined group at the moment, at that moment in Islam, but rather uh, the, the examples that, um, that Goldsia mentions are a number of individuals that would have been Kind of against those sciences and say there's no place for this uh, for uh, within Islam and for for Muslim scholars, but they were really a minority group um, within the large amount of scholars among the large amount of scholars that were active in the Buyid period. Um, and if you look at again uh, the average physician or astronomer, they wouldn't think of. Um, of, of, of Greek medicine necessary as foreign. It was a tradition that was already practiced in the region and that continued. Um, and um, we see El, no, Al-Baghdad is much later, but um, they continued this medical tradition as if that's a, kind of something that's universally true. And if we look much later in 13th century, Al-Baghdad even says that, right? Even though Hippocrates is reading in another, in another culture, in another time, um, what he says relates to medical reality, he says. And so that's still useful for us. So for the scholars that use this text, they weren't really considered foreign in that, in that sense. But there were some individuals that said this text shouldn't be used in a Muslim society. So how was medicine practiced 
during these times? Uh, you know, what was the status of medical knowledge of the human body like? Okay, that's so that's an interesting question. And it's nice that you phrased it that way because it shows it, it really refers to two different things, like the the medical knowledge of human body and uh, so let's say anatomy and uh, pathology and physiology, right? Human diseases versus how was medicine practiced at the time and and i think we need to see those as two different things like we can uh look in the works of ibn sina and uh, erosi almajusi we can see uh the medical theory that um evolves galenic ideas like uh, a lot of theory is is in line with galen but also a lot of uh, a lot of medical ideas are different from it galen says already at this time but then also practice is something something different. Arazi, he of course has a lot of um, notes of his practice. Some of them, they are in line with uh, the Galenic idea. Some of them don't necessarily follow that. But in addition, he also is someone who complains a lot about people not using the expertise of doctors, but instead seeing like folk practitioners and women. So apparently he felt threatened by that a bit and uh, was a lot of care done not did people search a lot of medical care, not necessarily from these scholarly trained physicians, right? And, and how that was practiced, we, we need to look at um, more maybe archaeological uh, evidence, maybe literature, um, and because that kind of practice wasn't necessarily written, written down. Who, who was the main or who were the main pre-Islamic you know, physicians that, or physician that people looked up to? Uh, you know, scientists uh, within the you know in the Islamic period engaging with these medical texts. Yes. Um, so we've mentioned their names already. It was on, uh, it was Hippocrates, the father of medicine, who was really considered to have written down the foundations. He wasn't the, considered the first physician, um, but he was considered the first to have really written down all these principles. And uh, then followed by that, there's Galen, who is definitely very influential, but. Uh, and considered very important, right? We we, uh, we mentioned um, the place of the works of both these physicians within the medical curriculum that was still studied uh, in the 9th and 10th century in Baghdad and other centers, right? But Galen and Hippocrates weren't necessarily approached uh, the same way. Hippocrates was really seen as the person who would have written down all the, the foundations. So even if he says something that seems to be wrong, they make go through efforts to exp- to explain it in ways that is right. Does that make sense? Or they say, well, if there's something that seems wrong, that's not really Hippocrates' words. But in the case of Galen, Galen is someone, yes, who's very important, but like them, he, he can be wrong about uh, medicine. And they critique uh, Galen. Uh, Islamic physicians critique Galen frequently and disagree with him a lot. Understood. And so, was there innovation in medicine? Uh, you know, experimentation with the white. If, if there was, you know, if something like widespread experimentation, surely there would be conclusions different uh, than what is written in the text of the sages. So, how did how did Muslim physicians respond to this? And I know you kind of touched upon this just a few minutes ago. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so there, there, there was innovation, and there, there was experience-based innovation, experimentation as systematic clinical trials um that would be maybe too big a word uh, it also different definitely seems to have compared large amount of patients in different group and their uh, disease outcomes so he would have done something that came close to that but definitely 
on a smaller scale, physicians would have looked at their experiences and based on that sometimes change uh, their opinion about uh, medical matters compared to, for example, Galen. An example of that is um, Bardedi, Abdelatif al-Bardedi, who after famine in Cairo in 13th century sees all these skulls in uh, in the desert or in a graveyard. I don't know where he's walking around and he sees skulls and he looks at them and he sees that the jaw um, isn't is, is one piece, the, lo- the lower jaw rather than two pieces, the way it's described by Galen. So he changes that. So then there's Ibn Nafis, um, also lived in the 13th century, who improved the understanding of uh, uh, the pulmonary uh, circulation. And uh, in addition to that, there were many, um, many innovations of, of Galenic explanations of Hippocratic ideas of disease ideologies. Uh, not that we would say they were innovations that were always in line with contemporary understanding of medical reality, but definitely um, ideas change based on reasoning and, and on experience. But overall, Islamic physicians did would have uh, upheld the general framework of Galenic humoral theory. So that idea that there's, there's four humors in the body and that that balance is very important for health and disease, that would still be very central in Islamic medicine. Understood. Thank you for that. And we're kind of nearing the conclusion. And these are kind of I guess, um, you know, larger questions. So who were the key physicians in the Muslim world? Uh, what were their works and their impact, both in the Muslim world and outside? And also, I guess, more generally, uh, what is the legacy of this large-scale translation activity that we were talking about in both the Muslim world and outside? Mm-hmm. So if we look at that early, that classical period of, of Islamic medicine, then there's uh, then key physicians really were Arazi and Amajuzi, and uh, of course Ibn Sina, but before Ibn Sina, Arazi and um, Amajuzi, they wrote big compendia of medicine, uh, or Arazi students also collected his notes and ideas, and these became very important in medical education and scholarship, and they also became known in translation in Latin Europe, uh, as did, of course, after them, uh, Ibn Sina and his canon, who kind of uh, after Ibn Sina wrote his canon, kind of surpassed Erosi and um, Amadjusi, also at Tilbury, in, in importance sometimes, uh, often in the field of medicine, right? So his canon becomes very important in, uh, in education and scholarship in the Islamic world and also in translation in Europe. Mm, yes, of course, Ibn Nafis should be mentioned as well, who wrote very influential commentaries uh, and summaries of the canon. So Ibn Sina's the, the canon would be translated, for example, into Latin, and that was really u- that was used in universities in Europe until 17th century. So that really was very impactful. Professor, you're obviously an expert in the field, and I, and I was wondering, you know, people who are not experts in the field and people who are interested in kind of uh, getting more involved with it. Do you have any recommended readings? Uh, yes, I would definitely uh, recommend. Uh, Dimitri Gutas's phenomenal work, uh, Greek thought and Arabic culture, about the Greco-Arabic translation movement in Baghdad and early Abbasid society. Um, and also uh, George Saliba's uh, book, Islamic Science and the Making of the European Re- Renaissance, where in the first few chapters you'll find his ideas on the beginnings of the translation movement. Um, and maybe for another aspect of this, the role of Syriac has really uh, been discussed by uh, Jack Tanus in his, in his PhD thesis, Syria between Byzantium and Islam. So that stresses the role of the Syriac translations as well. I mean, there's more, but that's a good story, I think. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Professor. So thank you so very much, Professor, for a super insightful and you know amazing conversation that we've just had. But before we conclude, I wanted to ask, do you have any projects that you're currently working on? Um, yes, um, uh, I am working on my on my first monograph. Um, I did my PhD. I worked on the Arabic commentaries on the Hippocratic aphorisms, and I'm now expanding that in my first book, where I work on the way Islamic physicians read Greek medicine, how they read the translation that is of Greek medicine and how they engage with that and uh, advance those ideas. So that's the, the big project I'm working on at the moment. Thank you again so much, Professor, for giving me so much of your time uh, and this awesome conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, Professor. And with that, I'd like to conclude the episode. <laughs>